right, well, it looks like it's 7.15. According to that clock, it's 8.15, but uh, 7.15. And I'm thrilled about the opportunity we have in the next coming weeks to look in First Peter together. If you haven't met me yet, I've been, uh, I've had the opportunity on five occasions, I'm not sure now at this point, to speak at this church uh, on a Sunday morning, and I've been exceptionally thankful every time, and it's been a blessing to me and my family as they've been able to come. Even right now, my three daughters, uh, 10, 8, and 6, are enjoying the time with the kids and uh, they, they knew some, some of the kids who were already here from school and that sort of thing. And so they were excited to come. And I'm thrilled about that. So I teach at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Some of you may have had one of my colleagues for a couple of classes. Mark Snowberger was teaching eschatology, from what I understand, just recently. And uh, <clears throat> so now I'm coming in and, and I'm teaching First Peter. This is a topic of great interest to me. This is what I did my doctoral research on was uh, this book. And <clears throat> I will try not to bore you with most of the details of all that that entailed. But that did give me a love for the text of 1 Peter. And I think it's a book that is incredibly relevant for our current time period. And so uh, being able to take the time together to look through this text, I think, will be very rewarding for each of us. So I'm excited about it. Now, we've already lost a week, and we're going to lose another week. So we lost last week because, of course, the uh, snowmageddon came, came upon us. Uh, though it was ne not nearly what everyone expected, eh, that tends to be the case. <clears throat> uh, my girls were excited, though. They got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off of school, and so uh, long, long weekend for them. Uh, but so we missed that one, and then... Uh, not this next week, but the following week, I will not be able to join you uh, because I'll be thinking about you a lot as I'm in Florida enjoying the beach. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, depending on how you view that, uh, my family is uh, doing a bit of a vacation down in Florida and we're looking forward to that. So that'll be two weeks we're going to lose. So we're going to have to move along at some pace to try and keep up. But uh, you know, we'll do what we can and uh, try and focus in on the main message of First Peter. So let me go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into the notes that uh, I've produced for us here. Father, thank you for the opportunity this, more, this evening uh, to gather together to consider the text of this scripture, this word from you. You've told, you've told us that your word is active and that it pierces the dividing of the soul and spirit, even the bones and marrow, it gets into the very thoughts and intents of our heart and reveals to us who we are, who you are, and who we ought to become. And for that reason, we look forward to a study like this because it is your very word that we're examining, asking that by it you might examine us and that we'd be changed, made new, and uh, more conformed to the image of your Son for whom we are so grateful Thank you again for this evening. Give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you open your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. And uh, the session today is mostly going to be about introduction. In some way, someone might say, well, you know, who really cares about all this sort of thing? Let's just get into the text. And, and we could do that. But I do think uh, building up some of the background of a text 
helps us to see some of the important points that the author is trying to make. And so we're going to begin with the fundamental necessities of the text, even where Peter himself begins, uh, looking at and examining some of the foundations of the text. So if you're in the text of 1 Peter, look there with me. He starts it this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, if we spent some time working through introductions to letters in the ancient Near East, particularly from this part of Asia Minor, what we'd find is that the beginning of Peter's letter is very similar to the beginning of other letters. You begin by introducing who you are, then addressing who you're writing to, and then often it would end with a prayer of peace, at least the introduction would, with a prayer of peace of some nature for uh, those who are uh, reading it. And so that's exactly what we find here in the introduction. So let's take a look at the course notes here. I indicate first, who is the author? The author is Peter the Apostle. And of course, why would I say that? Well, because he says in 1.1, Peter, an apostle. <laughs> All right, so he's identifying himself as the apostle. And if you ask who's Peter the Apostle, I think the obvious answer comes along with the chief apostle of the Lord Jesus as he walked the earth. In fact, we know that this is that Peter and that he wrote a second letter. How do we know that? If you look in 2 Peter 3, 1, it says, this is now the second letter I've written to you. So he wrote a first letter. Well, where did he write a first letter? Well, here it is in the text that we have. Church history unanimously indicates that Peter was the author of this text. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, because there are some... Uh, some who study this book and they say some, some things like Peter could not have been the author. It must have been somebody else, maybe somebody writing in Peter's name. And I'm going to just give very brief evidence that in fact, I think it's quite evident that Peter is the author. And I think that's important for us because it legitimizes his message. Uh, the Lord Jesus told us that he was the bedrock of the church. He's the foundation stone. In fact, Peter's going to build on that analogy in chapter 2. But Paul tells us that the apostles and the prophets are also foundation stones. Not the foundation stone, because the foundation stone is the cornerstone from which the rest of the building is built. But there are then better stones on the base than you get towards the top, right? So significant foundation stones, if... Uh, anybody here been to Israel? Uh, were you able to go into the into the underneath the temple and see some of those foundation stones? Do you remember that? I, I don't remember that. Was about twenty-five years. <laughs> All right. So let's imagine you did. <laughs> um, but one of the things one of the things that was memorable I, I visited perhaps uh, fifteen years back. But one of the things that was rather memorable to me was seeing some of the foundation stones because. Um, some of the other stones have been removed, but there are, some, there are a few of the very uh, first stones that were laid for that, uh, for that second temple that are there, and they're just massive. They're incredible. 
In any case, he says that there's these, uh, that Jesus is the cornerstone, but then the apostles and the prophets, so these gifted by the Spirit in the early church, are the ones who then establish the church. And then after that period, apostles don't continue. We don't call each other apostles, uh, that sort of thing, because that gift has ceased. Uh, I would argue the same thing has happened with prophecy. Those were foundation gifts in the early church. We don't have those anymore. Instead, we have pastors and teachers and those sorts of gifts that God's given to us. But Peter was an apostle. He was one who laid a foundation. And in fact, we build our faith on the letter that he wrote. And accordingly, establishing that he is the author is an important thing. So one of the reasons we uh, are pretty confident this is the Peter is because we have very early quotations of this text, though they don't necessarily indicate it's from Peter. But if they're really early, the question is, why would people have been quoting from it unless somebody significant had written? And you can see those early quotations there. Uh, there are other early citations where there's direct mention of Peter's name. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria. You can look some of those up online if you'd like at some later point. I didn't include them here just because I think um, it would uh, bulk up our notes. Uh, Eusebius mentions a little bit later. Of course, I think the fundamental evidence that Peter is the author comes in 1.1 when Peter himself says, Peter an apostle. He says in 5.1 that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, there are some who suggest that this is not, that this is illegitimate because Peter did not see Jesus on the cross. But that assumes a couple of things. That assumes that Jesus didn't come and see Jesus on the cross. And though we know that Peter fled at some point, we don't know whether he came back to see Jesus on the cross. But second, I think this limits his suffering to merely the cross. But his suffering was more than the cross. And Peter evidently certainly see, saw the sufferings of Christ. And then here's a, here's a key clue at the end of the book that's consistent with Peter being the author. He says in 5.13, he says, I greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, who's this Mark? This is John Mark. This is the same one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And church history pretty firmly establishes John Mark as a disciple of Peter, very closely connected to Peter. In fact, if you're familiar with the history, you'll know that the gospel of Mark is attributed to the memory of Peter. In other words, uh, Mark wrote it on the basis of the, the, the uh, testimony of Peter. So, Mark, my son, is very appropriate for the relationship we know that Peter had with Mark. And then I would argue that the use of Jesus' words in 1 Peter are quite evident. In other words, Peter walked with Jesus, heard him tell specific stories and narratives, very memorable things. And what we're going to find when we walk through 1 Peter is we're going to find that Jesus is, or Peter is, frequently citing the, the words of Jesus. Now, we have to be careful because he doesn't cite them this way. And Jesus said, instead, he just knows that you know what Jesus said. And so he uses similar wording that assumes that you're going to be able to pick up on the fact that he's quoting from Jesus. We'll talk about why he does that in a little bit. 
All right, so just a couple of notes. If you ever hear someone say, well, it couldn't have been Peter, why would they argue this? Well, the first is that uh, they say something like, the Greek is too good for a Galilean fisherman. Remember, what's Peter doing when Jesus comes to meet him? Yeah, he's, he's in a boat. He's fishing. And Jesus comes along, and he gets in Peter's boat, and then he says to Peter, Peter, leave the boat. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And, and Peter does. Same thing with James and John. So we've got four of the major disciples, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. Four of the, four of the disciples come straight off of boats. And the question is, uh, for those, uh, for a Galilean fisherman, by the way, we mentioned Galilee simply because it's, it's not a metropolitan, you know, it's not this center of the city kind of a place. It's kind of the backwoods. Um, we might say the UP, uh, something like that. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't expect people who were there to have this great education, is essentially. And then, then these were fishermen. And so the, uh, the thought is, well, these, these people couldn't have, couldn't have known how to write such good Greek. Because the book of 1 Peter... Uh, one of the classes I teach is Greek, and so I've, I've worked through the Greek of 1 Peter numerous times, and it's good Greek. But I really think that this is the wrong way to view it. Because recognize that Peter and Andrew, uh, from everything we read about their family, they were from a religious family. They were from a family of Jews. And the Jews were people of the book, right? Uh, Muslims often call Christians and Jews people of the book because the idea there is that they're also people of a book and the book is important to them. So that it's frequently been the case throughout history that people who, whose, whose worship focuses on a book, guess what their literacy is in comparison to the other people? Yeah, much more. Because there's, there's value in knowing how to read. And especially if your, your child is growing up, you want them to be the type of person who can stand up and read in the synagogue and that sort of thing. And so um, Peter and Andrew, their family was religious. So I have no doubt at all that uh, they were trained to read because of that fact. And, uh, and just because they were from Galilee does not mean that they were incapable. In fact, remember... When, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is preaching. And do you remember he's brought before the Sanhedrin? And what does the Sanhedrin say about him? Anybody remember? Yeah, how can these guys talk so good? Yeah, is it? Yeah, they're, they're like, now we can tell he's untrained, right? That means that he hasn't been in our schools. He hasn't had the elite education under Gamaliel, that sort of thing, which the Apostle Paul did have. He didn't have that, but here he is, and he's eloquent, and he's proclaiming the truth. And of course, I think that in one sense points to the work of the Spirit, but I think in another sense it points to the work of God preparing a guy like Peter for the task he's calling him to. And I, I really think that's an important point because I, I, we can so easily say, well, you know, here's Peter and he was gifted with the Spirit, and so all of a sudden he was transformed into being able to preach and that sort of thing. And I tend to think that 
very frequently, um, God is providentially aligning such that, uh, you know, Peter probably had some ability to communicate, which is probably part of the reason why he was the chief apostle, right? He had some leadership ability. And the Lord then took that and used it. So just because he was a Galilean fisherman doesn't mean he, he wouldn't be able to write a text like this. Uh, you can read some of the other reasons that some, some suggest Peter was not the author. I don't think it's really important for us to jump into that. Though I would say this. Uh, look at the end of 1 Peter. Look in chapter 5. Notice uh, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. So what does this mean? Well, notice that Silas is the same guy as Silvanus, if you've ever heard that name. Silas is connected to the Apostle Paul as well. And I'm going to forget right now which book it is. Maybe it's Colossians. I can't remember one of the Pauline epistles, Paul tells us that Silas wrote the letter for Paul. Okay, so who was the ultimate author of the letter? It was Paul, but Silas was the one who wrote what Paul told him to write. Now, why did Paul do that? I'm convinced it was because Paul had a major eye issue. Uh, we, could, we could discuss why that is, um, but remembering Galatians, he says, when I was first with you, you would have ripped your eyes out and given them to me. Kind of a weird phrase. Right? You, you don't generally say that. So it seems to me that he says that because Paul has an eye issue, uh, which I, you know, this isn't the class to get into that, but I think goes back to his conversion. I think he had something that remained with him the rest of his life from that vision of the Lord that was blinding, right? In any case, I think <clears throat> Paul was quite skilled at writing. He had learned it from a child up, but at the end of the book of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I've written to you uh, with my own hand. And so again, I think the reason he writes in large letters is because he can't see as well. And so in any case, that seems to me to be the uh, why uh, Paul used Silas. But <clears throat> in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for people to use someone else to write a letter for them. In a lot of cases, that was because uh, you weren't necessarily trained to write. Uh, just think of how easy it is today for us to get a piece of paper and to get a pen, right? I mean, how many of us have a drawer that has 5,000 pens in it? All right, I bet all of us do, right? You know, it's like so many. But <clears throat> in the ancient world, if you wanted ink, eh, that was going to cost you to get a quill. And, and then, so, so then learning the skill of writing was a distinct skill from reading. Because, you know, so that even people who knew how to read very well often didn't know how to write very well because the mechanical skill was never really honed. And it would be the same way today. There, there are many people in this world who, who can uh, read very well but can't write because they just never learned the ability to write. And uh, <clears throat> apparently they're not even teaching cursive in the schools these days. I mean, I learned calligraphy when I was back in school. I mean, this is... You know, pretty soon they're not even going to teach writing because you just type everything. And then they won't teach typing because you can say everything. It's, it's, you know, what kind of world are we in? I don't know. But in any case, <laughs> there you go. 
So uh, the point here is <clears throat> Peter tells us that he wrote it by Silas. And I think that that likely means that Silas had a hand in the letter too. So if you say at the end of the day, well, Peter probably couldn't have written this. I do think that Silas was involved in this. Peter was the ultimate source of it. Silas might have helped him in the formation of the letter. That seems to be what he tells us. At the end of the day, the source behind this letter is the Apostle Peter. And that's significant for numerous reasons that we're going to develop in the future, but mostly because how he develops his letter suggests to us his personal connection to Jesus. So... Peter's the apostle. Well, who are these people who received the letter? Well, we know one thing, at least. They're scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you might be saying, where in the world is that? If you turn to page 9 of the notes, you'll see a map. If you're familiar with modern-day geography, you would know this is modern-day Turkey. So it's the Middle East. You can see on this map, in the bottom right uh, section, next to Arabia, to the left of Arabia, near about Hierapolis, is Jerusalem. So that's, that's the area where uh, Israel is. And then if you go up, um, in the middle there, you see that section of Asia, uh, then you see Galatia, you see Cappadocia, you see Bithynia and Pontus. So we're talking about a pretty significant land mass that he's writing to. Uh, these are areas, by the way, in which you know the Apostle Paul also had ministry because he writes a book to Galatia, right? Galatians. And, uh, <clears throat> and there are other areas in which we know that... Um, that uh, th there was engagement. Now, of course, you remember in Acts chapter 11, Peter receives a vision, a vision of somebody who is where? Anybody remember? Macedonia. If you look at that map, you can see Macedonia. Macedonia is just a little bit beyond this region. So Peter, if he was traveling from Jerusalem all the way to Macedonia, I mean, that's quite a travel. I don't know if, yeah, so 100 kilometers there. Uh, you see that scale down there. It's quite a bit, quite a distance. And uh, Peter travels all that way. Of course, he would have to travel through Asia, Galatia, Cilicia, in those regions. So that's the region Peter's writing to, uh, the area of Turkey. And our church has the opportunity. We've got some, uh, some, uh, some missionaries in Turkey today. And it's sort of sad to see the state of... Uh, the state of Christianity there, uh, because at one time it was the religion of the area. Uh, but um, if you're familiar with history, you know the Muslim conquests uh, conquered by the edge of the sword. And uh, so you move along everybody who was there and you populate that area. And that's, that's what you have today in that region. So ethnic makeup. Uh, <clears throat> One of the key questions concerning this letter is, are these recipients of this letter, are they Jews or are they Gentiles? And the reason that that's important is because Peter uses a bunch of language that seems to suggest that these are Jews. He quotes heavily from the Old Testament, 
And he refers to the readers in language that was historically reserved for the Jewish people. Notice he calls them exiles. Uh, and obviously that pertained to Israel at one time. If you look in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Then he says, You who are not a people have now been called a people. Do you know every one of those was an inscription first given to Israel? So some have suggested then that, well, if these were things stated to Israel, then this must be Israel. I'm not convinced of that fact. And so I've given to you a couple of reasons why I think a Gentile audience is more likely. First, the region itself was just predominantly Gentile. Second, Peter says that his readers have abandoned the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Could you imagine Peter speaking of Judaism that way? The futile faith of your forefathers. Now, I think I could see Peter using that language in reference to the twisted nature of Judaism that some had embraced. But I don't think he would simply make a bald statement of the futile faith of your forefathers. Uh, so I think he's referring here to Gentiles who elsewhere in the New Testament tells us that the faith of Gentiles was futile. And then if you look in 4.3, it talks about the various uh, vices that the, he says, um, the time is sufficient, it's past for you to enjoy what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists the things that the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now, am I saying that Jews did not embrace such activities? Well, I think that's foolish. Of course they did. But was that characteristic of Jewish people? Only when Moses was up on the mountain. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it generally, at least in Israel and in this region, was not was not known of the Jewish people, but was it known of the Gentile people? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, these are the sorts of things that if, if you said to people, oh, this is what's going on over there, they would say, oh, that sounds great. Where was that at? I want to go visit there, right? Like they were proud of these sorts of activities. This is what life was about. Kind of sounds like our modern civilization, right? I mean, it's just uh, the parties and all these sorts of things. That's what life is about. So, at the end of the day, I think the Gentile audience argument is stronger. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't Jews there. But I think he's primarily writing to Gentiles. Now, someone might say, well, that can't be the case because Peter is the apostle to the Jews, right? Because Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. But let me ask you a question. When Paul went to, um, went to a new city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogues first, right? So was Paul exclusively the apostle to the Gentiles? Well, clearly not. He went to the Jews first and then also to the Greeks, right? And he had a priority there. He talks about it. So, yeah, go ahead. In the timeline, though, where was it where um, Peter had his vision about the, uh, you know, the food? Yeah, so that was pretty early on. 
That was, that bef was before this. Oh, right? yeah, very much. Wasn't this probably just wrote to the new Christians, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, that got kicked out of, you know, Jerusalem at the time? Yeah, I think so, though I would also argue that probably by this time you're seeing a greater division among the Jews and the Gentiles, so that in this region, I bet the majority of them were Gentile, but you're right. I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here saying that the Jews are excluded, but I'm saying there are some who interpret the text as he's writing exclusively to the Jews who are there, and I don't think that's the case. Uh, because of the way in which he speaks about their past. So I think it's primarily Gentile. And I think the answers to the Jewish audience questions can be answered. So some who suggest, well, why would he use language that was historically reserved for Israel to refer to the church? I'm a dispensationalist, and if you don't know what that word means, that's okay. But it means that I, I see a distinction between Israel and the church because there are some who have embraced the idea that God is done with Israel in the past and now he's moved on to the church and there's no more distinctive uh, thing for the, for the Jews. My problem with that is that if you read the Old Testament, there are promises that are given to the Jews as the Jews and God has not fulfilled those promises. And to simply, yet, exactly, to simply say, oh, well, you know, I know he promised it to them, but he's now giving it to them. That's, that, that just doesn't seem legitimate to me. When, in fact, I think we've got an alternative, which is that there's going to be a, um, a future kingdom in which he can fulfill every one of the promises he's given. But did you notice that in Romans 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul makes a claim. He says that one of the things God's done in this age is that he has given blessings to the Gentiles in order to draw the Jews to jealousy, right? So what's one way to draw the Jews to jealousy? And I think the answer is he's giving the promises and gifts of Israel to the Gentiles for a time. So I wouldn't call this fulfillment. Our reception of the promises and even the names, so we're a chosen people, we're receiving the blessings of Abraham. I think those things are true. Having said that, we are not the fulfillment of those things because we weren't the original ones who received the, the, the promises. But by giving them to us, I think what God is doing is he's calling on Israel to say, wouldn't it be nice to have those blessings that, that, that those Gentiles are having? Um, and by this means, one day the Lord will, in fact, call the Jews back to himself. Romans eleven fourteen. you could read about that there. The heavy use of the Old Testament is not inconsistent with Gentiles. I just think <clears throat> with me, uh, you know, if, if you, if, uh, let's say, you're preaching the gospel, uh, you're Barnabas, and you've now proclaimed the gospel to this church, and this church has believed. And now you're establishing the church. What are they going to read as their scriptures? I mean, this is pretty early on. So Paul, they don't have a collection of Paul's letters. Uh, they may not even have the, the written gospels yet, if it's pretty early on. So what are, what are they going to, what scriptures do they have? The Old Testament. They've got the Old Testament. 
So some people say, well, this couldn't be Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't know the Old Testament. But I think they did. They began, just like the synagogues were doing, they began to read the scriptures, read the Old Testament, because that was their scripture. Now, I think they had the Old Testament, and they had in companion with that, they had uh, the teachings of Jesus that were being orally expressed during their day. And the apostles were still around, uh, which meant that the apostles were able, oh, there it is. Uh, the apostles were able to defend the, uh, the scriptures. So when somebody said, here's what Jesus said, because uh, a lot of times we hear oral tradition and we think, boy, that must have gone wayward pretty quick. But the apostles are the governors of that tradition. They're still traveling around. Uh, you remember in Galatia, Peter comes to Galatia, right? So, so these, these apostles are traveling and uh, they're, they're governing that. So these, these saints, they knew the Old Testament and they knew the Jesus tradition, those oral traditions that were being spread about Jesus prior to the writing of those in, those, in the Gospels. All right, so we talked about who the audience is in terms of Gentiles who are in this region. Where did Peter write to and from? Well, we know where he wrote to. Where did he write from? Look in 513 with me. This is what he indicates. <clears throat> He's very specific for us. He says, I've written to you testifying this is the true grace of God. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. So who's this lady in Babylon? Well, immediately we might think of the city Babylon, right? So remember the Jews were, after their unfaithfulness, they were exiled out of the land and they were sent to Babylon. The problem is Babylon's destroyed. It's rubble. So unless Peter's living in rubble, which I don't think he is, uh, that's not where we're talking about. So why does he refer to it as Babylon? And who's this lady? Who's there? Any clue? Okay, yes, you're exactly right. We see this in the book of Revelation. And we see it in early Christian tradition that uh, Rome receives the moniker, the name Babylon. Why? Well, I think it's because the Jews feel like they, the, the Jews and the early Christians feel like they're still in exile. And where were the Jews exiled? They were exiled to Babylon. And I think this was a code word to essentially say, the exile's not over yet. And I, I'm convinced of that. I don't have time to develop that today. But I, I'm convinced that the Gospel of Matthew in particular develops that very theme, that the Jews never actually came out of exile yet. That the real coming out of exile will come at the mass conversion of the Jews that happens at the end of time. And that will be God really calling back a people to himself. In any case, I think that's the same theme that he's getting here. And so when he says, she who is at Babylon, I think he's merely using the word ekklesia. All right, so that's the Greek word for church. And it's a feminine word. So I think when he says she, he's referring to the church who's in Babylon. 
And part of the reason I think that, because notice he says, the church who is in that Bab- the, the church who is in Rome, that's how I'm going to interpret it, who's chosen together with you. If you'll notice at the very beginning of the book, he calls the readers God's elect, God's chosen. So here these believers in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are chosen by God and are blessed because of that. And then he says, she who is at in Rome, the church who's in Rome, who's likewise chosen by God, elect in reference to God, sends you greetings. And that's not surprising. Uh, you see that in Paul's letters where a church sends greetings to another church. Uh, and I think that's what we have here. So when was this letter written? This is an important question because it, it pinpoints some of the historical context that's related. So those who argue for genuine Petrine authorship, as I certainly would, are limited to dates before Peter's death for obvious reasons. <laughs> Hard to write a book after you die. <clears throat> that is not substantially before 68 AD. is suggested by the uh, history of the church. Accordingly, it's most likely written between 60 and 68. And if I had, to, if I was held at gunpoint, what exactly is the date? I would probably say 64 to 66. And then if they said, be more specific, I'd say 65. All right. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but somewhere around that date seems to make sense. And if, uh, if you were, if, if you were in Rome at the time, uh, or if you know Roman history, who's the emperor at this time? Nero. Nero. Good guy, right? Uh, doesn't, doesn't have a good name throughout history, right? Kind of like a Hitler type of a name. And Nero, near the end of his reign, uh, like many uh, who came before him, became more and more protective of his throne and more and more paranoid about people who were around him and thought that everyone was trying to take his throne from him, which ultimately generally becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you go so crazy that people say, we can't, we can't have this guy ruling over us anymore. And that happens a lot to these, to these people who have ultimate power. And that's what happens in Nero's case. And that coincides with about the writing of the book of, of, First Peter, and I think that that helps us to establish the historical setting of First Peter. All right, so there are three things I want to talk about with the history of this region in the Roman setting, and that is first, just the broad history of the region. Second, I want to talk about Nero, and then third, the, this thing called an imperial cult. You may have heard of that term before, but it's important for us to understand what it meant. So first, this this whole area is about the size of Montana. So if you're familiar with the size of Montana, it's about 129,000 square miles that Peter writes to this area of Turkey. And historically, these were independent nations. But when Rome came to town, Rome uh, wipes, the, wipes the floor with everybody who's there. Uh, most of the time, uh, they come in, they start flexing, and whoever is ruling says, what can we do to be annexed into the Roman kingdom? Because if you're the reigning monarch there, you really have two choices. You can fight and certainly die, 
Or you can say, we'd love for you to take over. And then they would give you a place within the, within the reign, right? Uh, within the Roman government. So clearly that's what most of them took. But there were a couple of prideful people uh, who said, no, we're going to fight this one out. And clearly all lost. So some were annexed peaceably. Others were taken over by force. But at the end of the day, all of these people were brought together. But the important thing here then is that these people did not share a singular heritage. It, they didn't consider themselves a native people uh, because there, there were all kinds of different gods and various things that united the pockets of them. And in fact, some of these areas were flatlands, but some of them were mountainous regions. And so it was hard to navigate and there wasn't much connection between peoples. And if you're familiar with mountainous regions, they tend to uh, create pockets of different types of cultures. Uh, that's the same today if you go to many foreign countries that haven't um, modernized, uh, you know, what used to be called third world countries. I don't think you're supposed to call them that anymore. Uh, but if you go to those regions where there are mountainous people, they're often, uh, you know, someone might describe them as backward because they're, they're culturally isolated. And so they just, they have their own culture and it's different than ours. That doesn't mean it's actually bad. It's just different, right? And... Uh, so you would find that quite a bit here with these people. But one of the things that Rome sought to do was to provide a unity in the midst of ultimate diversity. So how do you bring together hundreds of nations of people under one roof and have them get along? Um, you know, the great American experiment you know, we, we tend to think that it kind of started with us. It didn't quite start with us. It started really with the Roman Empire and, and a few empires before them trying to make a culture work in the midst of great diversity. And uh, the Romans were helped by what they, what they might even call an advanced culture, the Greeks. The Greeks had a lot of culture. It's, have you ever heard the word Hellenism, Hellenistic? Uh, this is the term that they used to refer to the influence of Greek culture taking over an area. And so the Romans actually really didn't care about putting their own stamp, necessarily like a Roman kind of a thing. They were happy with the Greek culture being the one that really dominated the area. And so you see that. Now I noted earlier that Nero's the emperor during the writing of this letter. He's infamous for his persecution uh, in about 64 AD when from the best sources we can put together, it seems like Nero because he wanted to do a building project and he couldn't do the building project because there were enough powerful people who prevented him, decided that he would start a fire in Rome. And uh, accordingly, since then all of a sudden everything that was in the path of his progress was destroyed, he could then start his building program. So this appears to have been what he did, uh, psychopath that he was. And uh, having done so, then he needed to blame it on somebody. And it, it appears that he blamed it on the Christians, and we, which was an easy target because Christians were really odd people. What do I mean by that? Well, they didn't do the things that everybody else did. They didn't uh, engage in the worship practices that the rest of the civilization did. And therefore, they were looked at askance, as askance. Uh, 
they gathered together in what they called secret meetings, which actually weren't secret. Anybody could come to them, but uh, they, they gathered together in meetings that, that the people found strange. And then rumors started spreading. Uh, you know, they're cannibals. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, communion, right? Because the language of uh, this is the body and this is the blood. Uh, so the idea gets out that they're, that they're cannibals. And then the idea is that they're incestuous among one another. Uh, that, uh, you know, they're engaging in all kinds of illicit activities that way. And this is because uh, they called each other brother and sister and there was a, there was a familial love that was, that was bonding them. So it's all misunderstanding, uh, but such rumors start flying and people love the rumors, don't they? And so you see this uh, early on that this is how some early Christians are viewed. I wish I had time to dig into uh, the early Roman literature on Christians, though, because uh, those who knew Christians knew that none of these things were true. And uh, so you've got some astute writers who talk about early Christians. And, and one guy writes a play about somebody infiltrating the Christians. He's not a believer, but he acts like he's a believer because of how kind and gracious these people are, and he can easily fleece them because they're so kind and gracious and they give uh, money to those who need it and all these sorts of things. So he's fleecing these, uh, these people. And, uh, and, but, but he talks about how their, their moral character is incredible. Uh, that's what, you know, so, so the Greeks understood this, uh, at least the ones who were knowledgeable, but there's a popular idea about them that's negative. Now, I am convinced that um, Nero's persecution of Christians did not become an edict outside of Rome. If it did, I think we'd have historical records of that because we get all kinds of historical records, but we don't have that. Having said that, I don't think that his persecution of Christians remained in Rome. What do I mean by that? Well, yeah, remember when... Remember when uh, have you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? The reason that phrase is stated is because literally in the ancient world, if you built a road, it better be connected to Rome somehow. It better get there, right? Because that's, that's the only way Rome's going to pay for the road. So, uh, so they, they had to have some value in producing these roads. So the point is that any news in Rome would spread elsewhere because of trade routes and those sorts of things. So the idea that Nero was not pleased with Christians would have certainly spread. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, you know that the, that the recipients of 1 Peter are enduring persecution. We're going to talk about persecution quite a bit. What kind of persecution and why? That's an important question to answer. And I think the imperial cult helps us to answer it. So what's this imperial cult? Well, the, the Gentiles or the Greeks had these early views that their, uh, that their kings were gods. Sons of the God. They were, they were given by the gods um, in order to rule well. 
And so they had these views. The Romans did not necessarily have such views. And nevertheless, when Julius Caesar takes over, um, he's, the, he's considered the first of the, the big Roman dynasty. When he takes over, and this is about 30 uh, BC, when he takes over, he rules everything. And before he dies, he is named divine. He's claimed to be divine. Every emperor after him then takes upon themselves the moniker of divine Sometimes just son of God, but sometimes literally God. There are two emperors who specifically emphasized their divinity. One was Domitian. I bet you can guess who the other one was. Nero, right? Nero, he emphasized, I mean, he had printed on coins that we still see today, Nero, God, right? So, um, so Nero really was really full of himself, thought quite highly of himself. And so this imperial cult begins to pop up in Asia Minor, particularly in Asia Minor. This area of the world really emphasized the imperial cult. Why do they do it? Well, because remember, there, I think there are two main reasons. One was because there was no cultural unity among the people. So what, what unified this diverse people? And the answer becomes what unifies the diverse people is the imperial cult. Every one of their uh, major holidays, guess what it's related to? Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's birthday is a major holiday. Uh, his ascension day is a major holiday. Uh, basically, every major event in Julius Caesar's life are the holidays of ancient Rome. So, so that's... And then what would you do on those days? You would sacrifice to Caesar. You'd make these sacrifices. And so they'd have these festivals going down the street and people would come out and they would make sacrifices at their doors. You're a believer. What does your door look like? Oh boy, <laughs> right? And can you hide your non-worship of Caesar? You really can't. Um, the uh, athletic games... All of them were dedicated to him and sacrifices were made. Uh, workplaces. So if you were at the Smith or these sorts of things, sacrifices would be made to Caesar. It pervaded the culture. It's what unified that culture. So then when Christians, especially when Gentiles who've been engaging in this worship become believers and they back away from that worship, how do you think their culture views them? It's not good. It's not good. And notice the other reason that the, these regions would worship the emperor is because the Romans loved it that these regions worshiped the emperor because it made loyal citizens. Because if Caesar's the god, who's going to go against their god, right? But the, the Gentiles loved it too because... Who would Caesar grant lots of blessings and honors to and riches and these sorts of things? The cities that most honored him. So if you were one of these towns that was granted the right to create an imperial temple, so a place in which you could go and worship the emperor, you would receive all kinds of funding. Lots of good would come your way from, from Rome. 
And Rome's where all the coffers are. That's where all the money's at. Uh, you know, like Washington, D.C., right? You know, every one of our states sends people to try and uh, get goodwill so that we can get more money over here to do whatever we want to do, right? And in the same way, people are doing that with Rome. And the way they do it is through the imperial cult. So not only are you strange in the first place if you're not engaged in the imperial cult, but second of all, you're risking, and, and, and especially if a lot of people become believers, all of a sudden, people aren't worshiping the emperor anymore. What does that say about your loyalty to Rome? And remember, <clears throat> Nero doesn't like Christians. Why? I think partly the reason he doesn't like Christians is because they're not engaged in emperor worship. And he's paranoid. And they're meeting together. And what are they meeting together to do? And maybe even he heard that they talk about a king, Jesus. I mean, you know... I, it, it's just ripe for misunderstanding and for some tensions that exist that way. That word gets over to uh, Asia Minor, where Peter writes a letter. And these people are looking at their neighbors who used to join them in worship and now are no longer doing it. And they say, what about these people? I, I don't know. I don't know. So to me, this is the, this is the core problem that Peter's readers are facing. Because of their embrace of Christ, they are social outcasts in their community. And what you find in 1 Peter is that these people are not dying for their faith yet. Uh, we, we don't get any sense that, that they're even being necessarily arrested, though I think um, that's a possibility. Instead, numerous times, Peter talks about this the way people talk about them. Uh, look with me in, uh, let me see, in chapter 2. Notice in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans or the Gentiles, those who don't believe, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's, here's what they're saying about you. They're saying you're doing the wrong thing. So, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing rejection by their culture. They're experiencing misunderstanding. And Peter's point is, make clear that you live righteously so that they have nothing to claim against you. And notice um, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good, but even if you should suffer for doing right, um, you're blessed. He, uh, <clears throat> notice verse 16. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So again, the point is, what are they doing? They're speaking evil against you. And you need to live such a good life that at the end of the day, they may say that evil against you, but it's not true. And it can be proved not to be true. Now, we see the same thing in chapter four as he talks about their changed lifestyle. So... That's the tension that the, that the audience is, is facing. Now, I do think that this can and, in fact, did turn into a potential legal trouble for the early Christians. Because all it took was one person claiming that a believer was unloyal to Caesar 
for a Roman governor to act. Because if you, I mean, just think about it. If you're a Roman governor or you're in Roman leadership and you've been placed in this area to govern and Caesar finds out that there's been an accusation against people and that these people are against him and you did nothing about it? I mean, this is Pilate, right? Pilate, does, does he think Jesus is guilty? No, but he's got a choice to make. Does he stand up for what he knows is right, which is let Jesus go? And if he does that, word's going to get back to Caesar because they've already promised it, right? I mean, remember what they claimed about Jesus? It's all imperial stuff. <clears throat> he knows it's going to get back to, to Caesar. And what's going to happen to, to him? Well, he's lucky if he survives, but he'll certainly lose his job. So it's basically Jesus or me. What am I going to do? I'll wash my hands of it. Yeah. So you've got to think about these Roman leaders. Uh, you know, the, the emperors don't tend to be very understanding people. Accordingly, any accusation has to be taken extremely seriously. So I do think that uh, some of Peter's audience probably were accused of wrongdoing. And we'll see this in chapter 3. That may speak of an actual courtroom setting in which they have to defend themselves. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, so uh, why does Peter write? I, I noted this already. He makes explicit his reason for writing in 512. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All right, what does this mean? Well, I'm convinced what Peter's saying here is, I've written to you to reconfirm in your heart that this is the truth. And second, that having confirmed that in your heart, that you would endure to the end, that you would remain faithful to the truth. And so here we are, friends. This is where we're going to have to end today. But here we are in, a, in such similar circumstances, in my opinion. Obviously, we don't have a, uh, a Roman governor over us who, you know, that sort of a thing. <clears throat> but I think more and more we are feeling the social effects of living genuinely Christian. Oh, you're one of those people who uh, doesn't accept gay marriage. Uh, you're, you're one of those bigots, right? Such terms are frequently used uh, for people like us today. And we're feeling greater and greater social estrangement from the culture we once found pretty welcoming. And I think that this isn't going to slow down. I, I think this is the new norm and it's probably going to increase. And if that's the case... We need to be encouraged by Peter. What does life look like as people who are exiles in our homeland? Because I want you to notice how Peter defines these people. He says, to God's elect, exiles. And I think what he's saying here is, you are God's chosen, and you are chosen to be rejected by the world. So, 
Peter writes, he says, I want to confirm that you've believed the truth. Yes, you're experiencing rejection because of the truth. But that doesn't mean the truth is wrong. Because remember, Jesus believed it. And guess what they did to him? So you're following the steps of Jesus. He's going to actually explicitly say that. That we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He says that. So, since this is the case, how can we stand firm in our faith? in the midst of great social rejection. That's why I said at the beginning of this lesson that I think 1 Peter's message is so critically important for the modern church because we need to hear it. And um, it's going to be ever more important in the days ahead. So thanks for your time. I've went over by 25 seconds. So forgive me. <laughs>